Let's open, uh, I'd like to encourage you to open up God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning and consider uh, this last section, verses 25 to 35. In this passage, this is one of the, well, I, I hate saying it's one of the fundamental, crucial passages. They're all good. They're all crucial. That's all inspired, right? So this is a really important passage in the sense that it speaks to us about discipleship. Jesus is, is teaching the crowds that are following him about what discipleship is and, and what, what does it mean to be a disciple? He's calling the crowds to be disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? What, it, what are the characteristics of a disciple? But also, what should a disciple know? Right? There's a commitment there. There's, there's a trigger to pull, but what should I consider before I pull the trigger? What should I do? What should I consider? What should I think through before fully committing to being a disciple? These are some of the questions we're going to try to work through this morning as we work through the passage in chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 25 and read to verse 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which, which, for, excuse me, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to draw attention to the fact that we're kind of making a bit of a change here in terms of the the scenery of the passage. In the previous 24 verses, which we've considered the last two weeks, we saw that Jesus was at at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. He had been invited over to dine there with other Pharisees and lawyers. And while he was there, we saw that Jesus was teaching uh, several lessons that incorporated the the topics surrounding him and his ministry, right? He was teaching them more about his identity as the Messiah. He was teaching them more about his redemptive mission, about life in the kingdom of God. And Jesus really challenged them to consider their own heart, their own life. He challenged them to consider their pride, their, their spiritual haughtiness. That was keeping them from God. He challenged them to humble themselves before God, to accept Jesus as God's Messiah. He challenged them to enter into the kingdom the way that God had prescribed, not the way that they were thinking. And he challenged them to walk in his ways. So while Luke does not record for us how the Pharisees and lawyers responded, the conclusion of the parable of the great banquet in verses 16 to 23 really foreshadows their rejection of him. If you look at the previous verse, verse 24, he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He's wrapping up that parable, but he's speaking very pointedly to the Pharisees and lawyers. They, 
because they had not accepted Jesus' invitation to the Messianic banquet, they would find themselves shut out. They would not appear at that table. They would not taste the banquet. They would not fellowship with God eternally in heaven forever. But notice that at the end of verse 24 there, Luke shifts the scene. It's a new scene. There's a new thing happening. We see that in the word now, as verse 25 opens. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and began to speak to them. The word now there signals a transition in the narrative. Jesus is back out on the road, and the great crowds are following him once again. And so it's natural that Jesus would turn his attention to them. As we make that shift, I want us to consider what Jesus tells the crowd here. I want us to consider some teachings that he gives to us in this passage about discipleship. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to follow him as disciples? And so I tend to enter into most anything of study, especially the Bible, by asking questions. So I know you maybe get frustrated with this, but my sermons oftentimes are questions that lead to answers. So I'm going to ask three questions to try to answer them for you in the time that we have together this morning. Question number one is why does Jesus address the crowd? Why does Jesus address the crowd? There are a couple of obvious answers, right? The most obvious is the fact that there is a crowd with Jesus, right? Duh. Who else is he going to speak to? They are, they are a natural and obvious audience in the passage. Jesus turned and spoke to them because they were there with him. A second obvious answer here is the fact that crowds had been developing around Jesus for quite a while now. They had been gathering around him really during his earthly ministry, throughout his earthly ministry. In fact, I went back this week and, and looked. In, in, in the Gospel of Luke, starting around chapter 4, end of chapter 4, up to this point, this is now the 20th time that Luke mentions in these 10 chapters that we've studied so far that a crowd has gathered around Jesus. The 20th time. That seems significant. And if we were to look ahead a little bit, this is the last time that Luke mentions a crowd gathering around Jesus until right before he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So this seems like a significant moment in terms of the life of Jesus, in terms of the story that Luke is telling. Now, we can understand why the crowds were gathering around Jesus, right? Jesus was healing people of of sickness and disability. He was casting out demons. He was even raising the dead back to life. He was teaching. Teaching that marveled those who heard it. Teaching about the kingdom of God. Explaining to them and elaborating about the realities of the kingdom. What the kingdom of God was like. How to enter into the kingdom of God. What life in the kingdom consisted of. How we should live in the kingdom once we are in there. Jesus, through his teaching and preaching, was revealing the way of salvation. He was revealing his own identity as the Messiah. He was disclosing God's wisdom and and truth and precepts for life and godliness. So such words and such works naturally attracted a crowd. If that were to happen, let's say somebody were to come through and and were to speak at the Capitol, were to do amazing things at the Capitol, it would probably gather our attention, wouldn't it? Want to know something, what's going on down there? Now, people came for different reasons. Certainly that was the, that was the hook. But some came because they had a need. As they saw Jesus do these works or as they're hearing this teaching and, and needing the tr- their, this truth for their life, there were some who came to Jesus for their own personal benefit. Some came out of curiosity, right? Who is this guy? Some came for entertainment. They didn't, couldn't turn on Netflix and watch the next latest 
you know, show, binge watch it, right? This is an ancient form of entertainment to, to hear someone speak or to see someone do miracles. Some came out of skepticism. They were trying to find something, some fatal flaw in something he said or in something he did to, to, to do him in, if you will. Some came out of ridicule to mock who Jesus said he really was. But regardless, as, as Jesus continues to minister now, we're into the third year, we see that the crowds become great crowds, as Luke says in chapter 9, verse 37, that they were increasing in number, as he says in chapter 11, verse 29, and that many thousands of people were, were coming around Jesus and pressing in on him so that they were trampling one another, chapter 12, verse 1 tells us. And so here in verse 25, chapter 14, verse 25, the pattern holds true. Great crowds continue to form around Jesus. He's had dinner with the Pharisees and lawyers. We don't know the specific chronology, but at some point Jesus gets back out on the road and the crowds flock to him like a magnet, just as has been occurring throughout his earthly ministry. But again, this time feels different. It's been happening. But this time, when Jesus addresses the crowds, it feels a little different. And I think we can see that through at least three observations. First, notice that the great crowds accompanied him. The word accompanied literally means to go together or to journey together. This word only appears four times in the New Testament. It occurs three times in the Gospel of Luke. The other two occurrences in chapter 7, verse 11, and chapter 24, verse 15, indicate that the word means journey together. So this leads me to believe that this great crowd has done more than just simply assemble around Jesus, but they are moving along with him. Again, we don't know the particulars of the, uh, of the setting here. Luke does not give us those particulars, but it appears that at some point after this dinner with the Pharisees and lawyers that Jesus went back out on the road He's journeying to a new place of ministry and the crowd begin to flock around him and travel with him. And that traveling seems like a pretty big commitment. If you look at the other two uses of this word, back in chapter 7, the crowds traveled with Jesus from Capernaum to Nain, about a distance of 30 miles or so. And in chapter 24, verse 15, it's the story of the two disciples who were walking along to the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is walking with them a distance of seven miles. So in the angel world, that's a pretty big commitment. So these crowds are, are more than just hanging around Jesus. They're, they're traveling with him. Second observation that shows that this is something a little bit different is that these crowds have been following Jesus now for a couple of years. We said this has been a, a pattern of his ministry, but this is now going on two or more years. And again, the crowds are nondescript. The, the composition probably fluctuates a little bit based on location or circumstance. But as a whole... The crowds have consistently been following Jesus. And because they've been consistently following Jesus, they've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. So why are they continuing to follow after him? Are they just satisfied to be in his presence? Is their curiosity not yet been satisfied? Are they looking for more? And so as Jesus speaks to them, he's about to challenge them about how they follow him, in part because they've been following him for so long. That they need to do more than just simply hang around. The third observation to make about the fact that this feels different, why Jesus addresses the crowd this time it feels different, is the fact that when we consider the larger context of the Gospel of Luke, there's a sense of urgency here. 
Time is running short. Again, we don't have the specific chronology for where we are at this point in Jesus' life, but we do know that this is sometime in the last year. And Jesus himself is aware of that. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 51, Luke makes a very clear transition in his gospel where he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's an important transition of the gospel because Jesus now, although it's always been there, right? It's always been his focus. It's always been his purpose. He now sets his face like a flint. There's a sense of urgency. There's a specific focus that he's got to get to Jerusalem because at Jerusalem, he's going to fulfill the mission God gave him. That is to go to the cross. That is to lay his life down as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. He's going to fulfill God's redemptive plan. Jesus knows his mission, and he is determined to complete it. In fact, all roads for Jesus, no matter where he goes, all roads lead to Jerusalem, all roads lead to the cross. Such a destiny then requires that Jesus fulfill the ministry that God has given to him in the time left. So if time is running short, and Jesus is calling disciples, there would be a sense of urgency here as he talks to this crowd. In fact, I call this moving day, right? Time to put up or shut up. It's time to make a decision. These crowds need to make a decision about Jesus. They can't simply hang around any longer as groupies. They must take the next step. They must follow him more closely as disciples Or, if they don't, what's the risk if they don't? If they don't, they're going to become like the Pharisees and lawyers who completely missed out on Jesus. Who didn't understand what he was telling them. Who preferred to to follow their own doctrines, their own theology, their own understanding of the Scriptures, their own traditions, and miss out completely on Jesus. The crowds must hear Jesus and respond to him. I think that's how this all comes down at the end in verse 35 when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It applies not just to verses 34 and 35, but I think to the totality of this passage. Hear Jesus. If you have ears to hear, then hear. And again, the Hebrew idea, hearing is more than just the gathering of audio waves, right? Processing through your mind. It is to act. It is to obey. These disciples must act upon, or these, this crowd must act upon Jesus' words and follow him as disciples. And so Jesus is going to direct his attention to them and instruct them about discipleship. Now, before we move on to consider what Jesus says about discipleship, I think it's good to consider for a moment just our, ourselves and think about how we might apply this to our own lives. Again, I don't want to allegorize the passage, but I see an interesting point of, of similarity, an sim- interesting point of comparison between the crowds And how many Christians follow after Jesus. And I I would ask you, how are you following after Jesus? There are a lot of people in North America. A lot of people in the South, right? A lot of people in our own city, in our own community, who would identify themselves as Christians. But many of those who would identify themselves as Christians seem to me to resemble the crowds here that are traveling with Jesus. There's a comfortable association with Jesus. There's a familiar association with Jesus. They're gathering around Jesus because of a particular self-need, whether that be physical or financial or emotional or intellectual. Maybe they're gathering in other churches as calling themselves Christians because they're interested. 
in Jesus. There's some sort of curiosity. There's something intriguing about Jesus. Perhaps they see that there's a crowd, a crowd gathering and they want to join that crowd. They want to be a groupie around Jesus. But when we look at the landscape of Christianity today, I can't help but notice that those who follow, many of those who follow Jesus are, are weak and shallow. And what they're building their lives upon is a foundation of sand, not a foundation of rock. Again, not trying to disparage people, not trying to disparage other churches, how they do church, but there's a sense in which a lot of churches today is nothing more than just simply people gathering on Jesus. Because the music's great, because they like the people, because Jesus is kind of cool, right? Are you like that? Would you consider yourself to be like that? Are you simply part of the crowd? Is Jesus just somebody that's intriguing to you? Are you simply following after Him because of a need that you have for your own life, that Jesus is kind of your own personal genie in a bottle who can get you out of a jam? And a good diagnostic question to ask yourself in this regard is, why did you come to church this morning? Why did you come here? Why are you interested in Jesus this morning? Are you coming merely for some personal benefit? Are you coming just because other people come? Do you come out of habit because it's the right thing to do? It was the thing you were trained to do. And I would just say there's a danger, as we, again, we'll see momentarily in the passage, there's a danger of simply being a member of the crowd. There's a danger in simply following Jesus as a part of the crowd rather than as a true and committed disciple. In a crowd, there's no commitment But Jesus calls us to something greater. He calls us to a more binding relationship. He calls us to be his disciples. And that would bring me then to my second question about this passage. What does Jesus say to the crowd? What does Jesus say to the crowd? First, Jesus calls the crowd, the great crowds, as he says in verse 25, to follow him, not informally as a crowd, but more formally as disciples. He calls them not just simply to be faces in a crowd with a tangential relationship to Jesus, but to be disciples committed to him. And again, notice the refrain in verses 26 and 27 and verse 33. He cannot be my disciple. He's talking there about the conditions for discipleship, but that's the refrain. Jesus is concerned with people actually being disciples. He's giving them the basic obligations of discipleship, which we'll look at in a moment, but he is calling them to a more fully committed relationship with himself. He's calling them to become disciples in a formal sense. And that word disciple, you know, we've talked about it before, it just simply means student or learner. In, in Greek or Jewish culture, renowned teachers took on disciples to teach them the depths of of their wisdom and knowledge. And these disciples became students of their teachers and tried to learn as much for them as they possibly could so that they could become like their teachers. The goal of, of a disciple was to become a teacher like his own, maybe even one greater than his own teacher, one that other disciples would come to and learn from. Well, Jesus here is calling his followers to become disciples but he's calling them to be fully committed to him so they might learn from him and imitate him. He wants them to become students of his teaching in every way. More than merely learning, Jesus is calling his disciples to imitate him, to become like him. So that requires knowledge. It requires truth. It requires word. It requires study. 
requires preaching and teaching, right? But all of that is useless if it's not practically applied. It needs to be lived out. As Adam so wonderfully pointed out to us in the call to worship this morning, that we are to have our minds renewed. Why? So that we might become living sacrifices. We lay down our bodies, our lives, for our Lord, so He might use them for His purposes and for His glory. In Romans 8.29, we read that for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose for us is to conform us to the image of His Son. As, our, as we are disciples, we become like the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is calling us. He's calling people. He called them then. He calls us now to come out from the world, to come out from the crowd and become His disciples. Now, what does that require? What, is, what makes a disciple? How does one enter into that relation of discipleship? Well, we got to think and go back to what Jesus called when he called his first disciples. The original disciples, right? That if Peter and James and John and the twelve were going to be disciples of Jesus, they had to first acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Back in Luke chapter 9, verses 18, which kind of records that incident, it says that Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the crowd say that I am? All these people that have been gathering around Jesus, that have some kind of informal connection with him, that are intrigued by him. What do, who do they say that I am? And, and, and the disciples answer back, well, they think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others that you're one of the prophets of old who has risen. See, these crowds did not have the right understanding of Jesus. Despite their fascination, despite their interest with Jesus, they had not yet come to the right conclusion about Jesus. They're a step better than the Pharisees and lawyers because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah to begin with. They're a step better. They're on the right trajectory but they hadn't come to the right conclusion yet. So if a person is going to move from being part of the crowd to being a disciple, he must make the same confession that Peter made in that passage, Luke 9.20. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So if we're going to become a disciple, it first requires us to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Second, to become a disciple, we must repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. We must forsake our old sinful lives. We must forsake the, the old wicked ways of living. We must cease our rebellion against God. We must turn away from all that God hates and we must trust Christ. We must turn to Him. If He is the Messiah, then that means that He is the, the means of our redemption. He is the one who God has sent for us to, to save us, to redeem us. When we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we trust that His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead saves us from our sins, reconciles us to God, adopts us into God's family, and grants to us eternal life. Third, to enter into that relationship formally, then, a disciple must follow Jesus. He'll explain more clearly what he means by that in a moment, but just at a fundamental level, trusting Jesus is a lifelong commitment to follow Him no matter what. When a person is coming to confess Christ, they are entering into a lifelong commitment to follow after Jesus. It's not just simply pray a prayer, get your fire insurance, salvation from hell, and go and live the way you want. Jesus is calling us to a lifelong commitment to walk with Him every day until the very end of our lives as disciples. Now, in calling the crowds to follow Him more closely as disciples, 
Jesus then also forewarns them what discipleship entails. This is the truth in advertising part, right? This is the part that a lot of modern-day evangelicals forget. All the great revivalism of the 20th century, right? Come to Jesus. Walk the aisle. Pray the prayer, right? A lot of times, they didn't tell you what that entails. They tell you about the good stuff, eternal life, peace with God, joy everlasting. But they didn't tell you some very important things about discipleship. And so Jesus here is very much up front telling them what they are getting themselves into if they enter into this relationship with him. If they will commit themselves to be disciples, this is what they must understand. This is not an emotional decision. Jesus calls them here to count the cost of being a disciple. And what are the costs of being a disciple? Jesus lists three. He says first in verse 26, a disciple must be willing to forsake his family and even his own life. Look at that, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, fa- his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that sounds rather harsh, right? To follow Jesus, you've got to hate your family? Sounds hard. It even sounds a bit antithetical to what Jesus himself taught us during his earthly ministry and what the scriptures teach us about, about families, right? Jesus taught his disciples that love was central to life in the kingdom of God. The second commandment, second great commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke 6.27, Jesus commanded his disciples the Sermon on the Plain. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Loving others, if we have, if we're gonna hate, if we're gonna love our enemies, certainly love those we like. Certainly love those closest to us. Go back to the Old Testament scriptures and we see that in creation and under the Mosaic Covenant, God ordered the family unit as the basis for community life. We share love with one another in our families, that's, that's foundational to life in this world. Life is God's people. So when Jesus says that we must hate Members of our family, that sounds a little strange to our ears, doesn't it? So what does Jesus mean by the word hate in this context? I don't think he's meaning it in a literal sense, but more in a rhetorical sense. He's using it for emphasis. In Hebrew culture, the words love and hate were oftentimes used as idioms when comparing two people. So a good example of this is in Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. We read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, so we have that, that contrast, that comparison. Jacob and his two wives, Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. And then verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. In other words, when she, when he saw that she was loved less, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. He's making a comparison there between Jacob's love for one wife and love for another. His love for Rachel was greater, his love for Leah was less, and yet the Hebrew and the Hebrew idea, the Hebrew culture, the word hate there is a way of expressing that, that idiom, that metaphor. It's not in a literal sense, but more in an emphatic sense. Right? Leah was less loved. In a statement that is parallel to verse 26, Jesus makes a similar comparison. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where he says, For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
So in verse 26, Jesus calls his disciples to love himself, to love him more than they love the members of their family. In other words, a disciple's commitment to Jesus must supersede his commitment to his family. The pursuit of Jesus must have priority over any family member. And where commitment to Jesus and commitment to one's family come into conflict, a disciple must choose commitment to Jesus. And this is a hard thing because for the most part, we love our families, don't we? And there's some families where there's estrangement and people don't talk to one another and so forth. But for the most part, we have people, we love our family members. We shared our lives with them. We probably don't appreciate what Jesus says here because we don't see that kind of conflict between Jesus and family, do we? Most of us grew up in, in Christian homes with parents who loved the Lord, who, who taught us the gospel and made a commitment to us and to the Lord to see us come to Christ. Most of us have married spouses who, who love the Lord and commit with us to, to have a Christ-honoring home. Most of us have attempted to lead our children in the ways of the Lord, to love the Lord and to follow Him as disciples. It's a great thing to see your children walk in the truth. But in Jesus' day and in many cultures around the world today, Jesus puts one at odds with one's own family. For example, in the Middle East, it's very common in the Middle East, that when you commit yourself to Christ, if you obey the gospel and you follow through to give your life to Jesus, that many times those families will turn their back upon that individual. They may even have a funeral service. They may put a bounty on your head. And so a lot of people living, especially in the Muslim world, for instance, when they are weighing this decision, whether to follow Christ or whether, whether to, to reject him, this issue of family is a very big deal for them. And Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me as a disciple, you need to count the cost. You've got to hate your family. You've got to love them less and love me more. You have to give me the priority of your, of your life over them. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Don't let your love for family keep you from committing yourself, committing yourself fully to Christ. Our love for Christ must supersede our love for our family. Jesus also says here in verse 26 that we must not only hate our families, but also hate our own lives. Again, Jesus here is, I don't think, calling us to self-loathing that would lead us to destructive behaviors against our physical bodies, but he says we must love Jesus more than we love ourselves. That may be more of a challenge, isn't it? We tend to want to love ourselves more than we love Jesus. But Jesus says we must love him more. We must commit ourselves fully to him and prioritize his way over against our way. Or to use another expression of Jesus, we must deny ourselves and deny our commitments to self in order to follow him. In John 12, 25, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So the first cost there is, is that of family. Anyone who, who will not hate his own family or even his own life cannot be his disciple. The second cost to consider here is that a disciple must bear his own cross as he follows Jesus. The disciple must bear his own cross as he follows Jesus. The cross, just taking Jesus out of it for a moment, we, we associate the cross with Jesus for good reason, but let's just take Jesus out of the equation for a moment. Just the cross itself was, a Roman, was the Roman instrument of capital punishment. 
A condemned criminal was required to carry the crossbar from the place of his holding to the place of his execution, and that weight would be somewhere between 70 and 90 pounds. And of course, the criminal is doing this all in a public setting. So people, as he's walking through the streets with his crossbar, people know what's happening. They know he's walking to his execution. They know he's a condemned criminal. And it adds to the shame of bearing that cross. And so Jesus is using the cross as a metaphor for what is required of disciples. And he's saying here, discipleship is hard. It is a difficult thing to follow Jesus in this world. And that's where I think we don't put the truth in advertising in our evangelism, do we? When we are calling people to come to Christ, we don't let them know, this is going to be hard. There's a lot of glorious things to consider. There's a lot of benefits. There's a great inheritance reserved for us. So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard to follow after Jesus. It will be a difficult thing. Now, Jesus calls us to this. He calls us to be disciples. He calls us to embrace this way. But he lets us know you're going to be despised. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be shamed. And that's all part of it because that's what happened to him. We must bear the cross and we must endure the shame if we will be his disciples. And of course, let's put Jesus back into this. All right. Let's think about this bearing the cross in the light of what happened to Jesus. Bearing the cross takes on greater meaning because Jesus bore his own cross. Jesus, after his death, indicates to us what discipleship really is. It is to walk his road. It is to walk his path. It is to identify ourselves with him. It is to endure the rejection and the insult and the shame that he himself faced. But we do it because the pleasure and glory of following Christ is so much greater than the pleasure and glory of this life. Third cost he asks us to consider here is in verse 33. He says that a disciple must renounce all that he has to follow Jesus. So therefore, any one of you who cannot, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The word has there in the Greek can be is used in this form, this noun form of this word, is, is speaks of one's possessions. In other words, we cannot allow our possessions to keep us from following Jesus. Again, this doesn't mean that we must sell all of our possessions, take on a vow of poverty, live an ascetic lifestyle to follow Jesus, but it does mean that our possessions cannot get in the way of following Jesus. We must hold on to these things loosely. That's a hard thing for American Christians sometimes, isn't it? Because we love, there are certain things that we have to be loved, and we just want to put an iron vice right over it and don't want to let it go. Jesus says, hold on to these things loosely. What we have has been given to us by God as a stewardship for his purposes. When our possessions stand in the way of our commitment to Christ, then we must surrender them to him. If we love our possessions more than we love Christ, Jesus says we cannot be his disciples. Again, this is probably the greatest struggle that we face as Christians living in the affluent West. You might not consider yourself wealthy, but you have abundantly more than others around the world. You have abundantly more than what you need. Are your possessions keeping you from discipleship? At any rate, Jesus makes clear here what he did requires of his disciples. The great crowds must move to discipleship if they will really follow Jesus. But he discloses up front what discipleship will entail. And in disclosing that, he calls them to count the cost before committing to him. 
He wants them to really consider what discipleship will mean before they answer the call. And he gives two illustrations there of what it means to count the cost, right? In verses 28 to 30, he gives the illustration of building a tower. There's a man that wanted to build a tower, got started on the project, didn't count the cost ahead of time, what it was going to cost him financially to build that tower, got into the midst of construction and couldn't finish. And now what's left is an unfinished tower as a monument to his foolishness. And all the people that see it are mocking him because he didn't weigh carefully the cost to build that tower. Those of you who who run your own businesses oftentimes do this when you give out estimates, right? When you're giving out an estimate to a customer, you want to make sure that it's a good estimate because you don't want to get into a project and either have to tell the customer they've got to pay more for your service or eat it yourself because you didn't tell them up front what it was going to truly cost. And so Jesus here is using an illustration to call us to count the cost, to consider what it will mean for us to be disciples. The second illustration is of a king going to war in verses 31 and 32. This king recognizes that an enemy king is coming to make war, and he realizes, sits down, do I have what it takes to go to war? I've got 10,000 troops, he's got 20,000, this doesn't look like it's going to be a fair fight. And so even as he's considering this, he sends ambassadors to go to this this enemy king and negotiate terms of peace so that he might not face the tragic consequences of defeat. He counted the cost. Again, both of these illustrations point to the fact that potential disciples must consider what discipleship means before pulling the trigger. Yes, Jesus calls the crowds to a greater commitment. He calls them to discipleship, but he calls them purposefully. He calls them to calculate the cost so that they can be the disciples that he requires. And that brings us to the last question, number three, verses 34 and 35. What are the consequences of a failed discipleship? Jesus here in verses 34 and 35 is warning potential disciples. He makes that warning by comparing discipleship with salt. Salt served multiple purposes in ancient society, but the main purpose seems to be its usefulness for flavor. Right? We know that today. Salt seasons food, makes it palatable, makes it savory. But if salt loses its taste, what good is it? What use, what use does it have? It's, it's useless, Jesus says. Salt's taste cannot be restored because its taste is one of its fundamental properties. It's what makes salt, salt. So if salt loses its taste, it has no purpose. It is useless in every imaginable way, even as fertilizer. And Jesus here is implicitly making that analogy to discipleship. A disciple who commits himself to Jesus and continues on the path of discipleship is a useful instrument in God's hands. With Christ's commission and the Holy Spirit's power, God uses that disciple to accomplish his redemptive purposes, no matter what challenges they may face. You may go through a trial. You may go through persecution. You may go through great difficulty, but God, you are an instrument in God's hands for Him to accomplish His redemptive purposes, no matter what those challenges are. And Jesus calls such people to be committed, meaningful, useful disciples. But a disciple who does not count the cost of discipleship, whose love for family and self supersedes his love for Christ, who can no longer bear the cross, who cannot part with his possessions, cannot really be a disciple. And if this happens on the course of our discipleship, 
then it will be like salt. We will be like salt that has lost its taste. We will be useless to our master and we will have run our race in vain. By this analogy, Jesus here is calling to the crowds who are considering discipleship to become committed disciples, committed to faithfulness with him, to him all the way. Then and only then will we be truly useful to our master and our king. So Jesus is calling out disciples. He's calling out disciples from the crowd. He's calling the disciples out from among us. From among our world today. It is not merely enough to hang around Jesus. We must enter into relationship with him. And the benefits of that relationship are glorious. For we have forgiveness of sins. We are reconciled to God. We are saved from hell. We are united with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We have eternal life. And we have a glorious inheritance that will never be taken away from us. That relationship will exact a cost from us. As Christ's disciples, we must love him before all else. We must bear the burden of following him. We must renounce all that keeps us from full commitment. It will not be easy to follow Jesus. But the price is worth it. Count the cost. But the price is worth it. May we fully embrace Christ's call. May we fully embrace the commitment required to be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, these are indeed hard words. And maybe they've been a little startling for some of us. We've grown up in churches, we've grown up in traditions where we've just been told that just give our life to Jesus and get over it. Just take that step. Pray that prayer. Walk down an aisle. We haven't gone farther in our discipleship. We haven't heard the costs of following Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, today that those of us who have responded to the gospel understand that we are called to be disciples, that we are called to faithfulness, we are called to walk this long road all the way to the very end of our lives, walking because of what Christ has done for us, compelled by a love for Him that is rooted in what He has done for us in the gospel, understanding that there will be trials and tribulations and persecutions that are required for us to enter into the kingdom of God. But knowing all along that it's worth it. The price is worth it. Lord, help us to be faithful disciples. I pray that you would work in the lives of those who are considering that. Lord, those among us today, maybe who've just been part of the crowd, they haven't fully responded. They haven't taken their discipleship seriously. I pray that today you will call them to something deeper. You will call them to the way of commitment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've just said that to be a disciple is to be an imitator. And what are we imitating? We're imitating Jesus himself, right? We're following his example. This is the example that the writer of Hebrews tells us, gives to us of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus considered the cross. He counted the cost. He laid down his life. He shed his blood for us so that we could become his disciples. And so as we come to the table this morning, let us remember the example of Jesus. Let us be grateful for what he has done for us. But also let's renew our commitment as disciples to say, I'm going to follow in this path. I'm going to walk his way. I'm going to stick with him to the very end. I want to be the disciple that he is calling me to be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us come to this table.